0: I'm Christy Gupton, and I'm an Employee Benefits Advisor. Welcome to Healthcare Solutions, a podcast where we explore innovations in healthcare, cost containment strategies, and employee well-being. We'll discuss every way possible to turn our healthcare system back into the kind of environment where patient care comes first and costs go down as a result. I invite you to join me to hashtag Let's Fix Healthcare. In today's episode, I'm talking with Mark Pugh, Senior Vice President at Preferred Medical, a workers' comp-focused pharmacy benefits manager. I found Mark on LinkedIn, but last year we worked together to hold a large forum in North Carolina on what employers needed to be doing to protect themselves and their employees from the ravages of the opioid crisis. Mark is a well-known, nationally recognized speaker, blogger, An expert on the intersection of chronic pain and its appropriate treatment. Listen here as we talk about where we are right now as an industry and our quest to solve the opioid crisis. Today we're with Mark Pugh, Senior Vice President at Preferred Medical, a workers' comp-based pharmacy benefits manager, and we're going to have a discussion today about how the workers' comp industry and the opioid prescribing industry might be uh, becoming more uh, aligned and working together for the, better, um, the, the betterment of injured workers and um, the plans that they participate on. So Mark, um, tell me how you started doing this work and uh, how it's changed over the years.
1: Well, thanks, Christy. I've enjoyed being with you and uh, knowing you for about 14 months now, and uh, it's been great to work with you. And we think a lot alike on opioids and the appropriate use of pain management. Um, I really started this journey back in 2003 uh, when I noticed the overprescribing of opioids and workers' compensation. And it wasn't just the opioids, it was the polypharmacy. Um, If it was just the opioids, that would be bad enough. But then people eventually can't poop, they can't sleep, they can't wake up, they have higher anxiety, they have higher depression. And so oftentimes what I would see in 2003 is the advent of really poor clinical outcomes and financial outcomes from a workers' compensation standpoint by virtue of them being on 5 or 8 or 10 or 15 different drugs, multiple prescribers multiple different drug classifications, an increase in symptomatology, dosage increasing, step therapy, just all the bad things that you would think and looking at it's like, okay, if we're getting worse over time, we probably should change something and do something different. But nobody really had really seen it at that particular juncture. Um, and so I'm not a clinician. Uh, oftentimes when I speak, uh, people think that I'm a doctor or a pharmacist or sometimes based on the subject content, an attorney or a claims adjuster. When I was talking about medical marijuana one time, somebody thought I was a chemist. It's like, no, I'm not breaking bad. Um, <laughs> nothing related to that. But um, I'm just a, a, an intuitive, uh, lifelong learner. Uh, And I've always been inquisitive, and when I saw these trends, it didn't make a lot of sense. Being a technology person by background, I'm a binary, logical kind of guy, and I just don't deal with illogic very well. And it was illogical for us to continue to write these scripts and not really do anything but see these people get worse over time and not do anything about it. Um, And so I've had the opportunity to read treatment guidelines from around the country, uh, read hundreds of thousands of pages of medical records, um, seeing thousands of drug transactions. Uh, interacted with the smartest doctors, psychologists, physical therapists, nurses um, all around the country. And through all that I've kind of aggregated this knowledge. Um, and my very first presentation in March of 2012, in public speaking uh, was on best practices in opioid management. Um, And I've kept that PowerPoint just as a source of pride um, Mm -hmm. to some degree to kind of see how I've grown. And interestingly enough, a lot of the concepts and the the guiding principles that I had come up with then... Uh, are still true today um, the polypharmacy the um, trying to focus on better outcomes better function mm-hmm. um, better quality of life and that kind of thing so I developed a following over that time it's I mean after 550 presentations I'm either doing something <laughs> right or somebody's really stupid to asking me a, uh, um, you know back and forth and then I've been blogging Uh, just a lot of different things going on and through that process I've had the opportunity to meet even more people so it's interesting you know one of my basic uh, foundations in getting started was on LinkedIn Um, and it's a great connecting resource but the, the thing the concept about LinkedIn is that you get the first level connection and you get access to the second level and the third level so your reach actually grows And so, you know, after having presented to almost 45,000 people um, in those 550 presentations, so many people that I've gotten to know that they have introduced me to other people. So it's consistently kind of, um, I've evolved.
0: Sure. It builds on itself.
1: Absolutely. So, and all of these people have unique um, experiences. So... You know, if you looked at my connection, the vast majority of them, well I won't say vast, but a majority of them have nothing to do with workers' compensation because the stuff I'm talking about have um, universal application. And so um, I've engaged with a lot of people who are in chronic pain that aren't injured workers are just in chronic pain. Advocates, um, you know, for chronic pain users. Uh, Just addicts, um, people who are in recovery, just all over the board. And all of that has kind of influenced me and and refined and given me an insight into the nuance. Um, One of the things I, I see oftentimes is that people think that they have the answer. And that's always a little bit of a red flag to me because if people say they have the answer, they probably don't know the full scope of the question because there isn't a single answer, especially when we're talking about this particular subject.
0: Right. So many moving parts. I mean, Mm -hmm. the the social determinants of health are Mm -hmm. through the roof with this issue. Mm -hmm. You have a huge mental health component, a... um, a, an issue with um, you know being able to return to work uh, just because are you physically able to return to work especially if um, you're still dependent on these medications so um, you know what struck me this was definitely how the workers comp industry really got well, no. ahead of the game um, way beating out the health benefits in industry mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know the 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 blue crosses and the united health cares and and all of the big health insurance companies uh just didn't grasp this problem until it was a national crisis and were way behind uh, on the talking points Um, really almost had to be called out on the carpet before they would uh, take a position Mm -hmm. on what they needed to do but the workers comp industry was really ahead of the game how would how would you describe that?
1: Well, I, I have consistently thought that, that we have done a better job in comp and I think it falls into a couple of different categories. First one is that we own that patient injured worker's care for the rest of their life until we settle it. Um, so similar to the VA and the Veterans Administration has um, very much been on top of this particular issue as well. Um, because they literally own you for life. I mean, they can't settle the claim, right? If you're an injured employee, i.e. soldier, um, you know, they're responsible for your care forever. Mm-hmm. Um, contrary to group health, which you may be somebody else's problem come one one Right. Because, you know, um, employers switch plans. Um, And so oftentimes there isn't that long view per se because, again, you may be somebody else's problem later on, so they just want to get you through to 1231 and hand you
0: off. Yeah, so maybe there just wasn't the ambition to do anything about it because, like you say, the risk may, may resolve itself in time if they... Um, rate up the group and give them enough of an increase or a, a, you know encouragement to leave and go to another carrier.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So in workers' compensation, we own it for life. And so we've seen the um, the lifetime expectancy of what's going on. And, and that was the other thing back in 2012, 2013 um, was the concept of Medicare set-asides. Uh, and they have been around for a while. Um, CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, to protect the interest of Medicare, want to say if a private payer, especially work comp, is responsible for this particular injury or this particular body part or diagnosis, then when they become Medicare eligible, Medicare doesn't want to pay for that care. and right. So they required um, a set-aside and says, okay, you need to set aside this money so that when it comes time and, and we're on the clock, that we're not paying for that. We'll pay for everything else, but we're not going to pay for that part that was covered by third party. Um, And it was that Medicare set-aside that I think was a real wake-up call for for workers' comp because typically the way Medicare set-asides have worked historically, it's changed a little bit, but you look at the last two years of experience, in prescription drugs, in treatment, you know, physical therapy, um, proposed what surgeries may be if you had a knee replacement um, because of the work-related injury. You may need to have that knee replaced again in 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so they build all these costs into, you know, and you set aside all that money. Well, what you saw on Medicare set-asides is the use of these drugs, these medications, um, that were meant for short-term use, but we were going to extrapolate their use for 36.2 years or whatever the lifetime the expectancy was. Mm-hmm. And the math on Medicare set aside is real easy. takes the, the care that's been done in the last two years and you calculate the rated life expectancy and you multiply the two and that's the dollars. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's not hard math. And it it's and not. it really adds up to be a lot.
1: Absolutely. It's not hard <laughs> math, but it's not realistic because nobody stays the same. Right. Everybody gets worse. I um, see. And so, you know, Um, especially when you're introducing drugs and usually when you see you know these particular prescription drugs you see them creating side effects and those side effects sometimes get to the point where they create symptoms and then those symptoms rather than dealing with the root cause um, Those symptoms say, well, let's add another drug to address it, so you can't sleep. Mm-hmm. Well, rather than addressing the root cause of why you can't sleep, which is probably maybe the over-sedation of opioids during the day, so you're napping throughout the day, and when it comes time to sleep at night, you can't. And you're in pain at night, so you can't. So rather than dealing with the root cause of that, we give you an Ambien instead.
0: Exactly.
1: Or Movantic. Um, that was a real epiphany, I think, for a society about three years ago. When they launched OIC, the concept of opioid induced constipation mm-hmm. is a part of Super Bowl commercial. Right. You know, Super Bowl commercials is it's supposed to be more about beer. Right. Right. <laughs> than not being able to poop. But right. you know, they they did this, you know, they spent millions of dollars on this particular commercial and brought into our social consciousness right. the concept of opioid induced constipation. Well, a lot of people go, okay, so you have opioid-induced constipation. If we reverse-engineer it, you're constipated because of the opioids. Well, maybe the best way to get rid of the constipation is to get rid of the opioids. Right. But instead of doing that, we're giving you another pill, another drug to help mm-hmm. with constipation. And so all of that has fed into this Medicare set-aside. And we did this simple math and figured out that all these short-term drugs... We're not meant for thirty six point two years, rated life expectancy, and yet we were going to be expect to put money aside of two hundred or three hundred or four hundred or five hundred thousand dollars. That person's gonna get worse because their side effects are gonna increase, their body is gonna get worse over it. I mean, pain gets I mean, you know, Unfortunately, I think when you become 15, I think it's all downhill from there <laughs> <laughs> as your body starts to, you know, um, re- reverse back to the dirt, right? right. So, um, you know, it's just not a, it's not a realistic expectation that this is going to it's simple math. we got to do it simply. And so people in workers' comp go, and I, I kind of called it the MSA OMG moment, mm-hmm. right? When you go, oh, we're going to spend $500,000 on prescription drugs. That were not meant for use long term. We're telling them we're going to use them for 36.2 years. They may not. Um, they may not manage that fund. So if we stroke a check to an injured worker for 500 grand, if they're not professionally managing it, then chances are they might use that 500 grand in other ways, other than to pay for the next 36.2 years. Right. So it stops settlement altogether because nobody wanted to give them that amount of money, and the amount of, m- amount of money didn't even make sense. And now Medicare set actually are automatically including Evzio, which is the more most expensive version of Narcan at more than 50 milligram morphine equivalent dosage, which is what the CDC says. I mean, right, the CDC guidelines say, consider co-prescribing naloxone with opioids over 50 milligram. Well, CDC and CMS got together and go, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. So if you're giving someone 120 milligram, 240, 700, whatever it is, anything over 50, CMS is gonna automatically add two grand for EBSIO. So now it's gotten even more silly because that's financially obviously a bad surprise, right? And number two, it should create an epiphany. So why do we need to give you an antidote for something that we're paying for? And that's where comp. I think we got our moral compass. Mm-hmm. It started really as a financial outlook. It's like, this doesn't make sense to pay for all this stuff for long. And then it's like, and what are we doing to these people? Yeah. You know, their quality of life continues to decrease. Their level of function decreases. They're taking more and more drugs. So compliance with those drugs creates issues. And then you're establishing comorbidities. You talked about the psychosocial, social determinants. You know, we don't want to pay for psych as a compensable diagnosis and comp. I mean, we want to pay for what hurt. Right. I have made the argument for several years that we're paying for it anyway, because I've seen many times where you get two injured workers with basically the same condition, got competent treatment no complications from it one person got back to work and back to function the other person went south Mm -hmm. had nothing to do with the diagnosis had nothing to do with the treatment had everything to do with the fact that they were abused as a child. They had an alcoholic father. The ACEs, the adverse childhood events, the CDC has documented. Um, social determinants, genetics, um, mm-hmm. social enablers—you know, being growing up in a difficult neighborhood. There's all sorts of things, and so you know, I've consistently argued that that biomedical model of just focusing on what's physically wrong and ignoring what's happening in the head or what happened in the head. Um, and what's happening around them and at home has as much to do with their willingness and ability to get better. So we gotta have that biopsychosocial, spiritual treatment model. We gotta deal with the whole person. So. This whole dialogue in comp really started at causes like this doesn't make sense, but it evolved into not only does it not make financial sense, but it doesn't make clinical sense. It doesn't make humanity sense. Right, right. That we're making these people worse. And there had been so many people in comp, in group health, and Medicare and Medicaid, VAs had a significant problem with opioids. Um, you know, we've had all these issues and nobody really were, was really paying attention up front to what the long-term repercussions were mm-hmm. um, for that. And so we got to look at it from a humanity standpoint and trying to do what's right by the injured worker, the patient, the soldier, um, and at this juncture we've, we're, we've changed the dialogue and comp. I'm not sure that group health necessarily yep. is there yet, right. um, but certainly from a society standpoint, um, you know, when, when I started talking about opioids in 2012, that was when people were still spelling opioids with only one eye. <laughs> right. You really understand that there wasn't a whole lot of people talking about it. Now, USA Today, ESPN. Right. com, 60 Minutes has constant news on the lawsuits and stuff. I mean, there's if you, you'd have to be completely comatose or not paying attention and not realize that there's an opioid epidemic. Sure. And so we have that going for us now as far as momentum towards well, what's the alternative? Is it an NSAID? Maybe it's deep diaphragmic breathing. Maybe from a chronic pain standpoint, it's yoga and stretching and spend a little extra time in the morning to get ready for the day, what is it that helps you achieve the maximum amount of function while truly managing your pain? Sure. So it's been a long journey, mm-hmm. and this is a long answer to a short question, That's okay, but um, the, it's been a long journey for comp. It really started financially, but I think it has evolved into doing what's right, and that's ultimately, I think, what most people in comp are about now.
0: Yeah, I, I think so many conversations are happening uh, on a number of different levels, I read an article in Time Magazine this weekend about using food as medicine, and it talked about how physicians were uh, putting their prescription pads down, which you know is a, a revenue decreaser for them, mm-hmm. and focusing more on a whole food diet for you know the, the patients that come in their office. So thank goodness I think some people are coming around mm-hmm. to... Uh, you know, using some common sense and more natural ways to to not only treat chronic disease, but Mm -hmm. also treat pain.
1: Well, if you have pain, pain oftentimes comes with inflammation. It certainly would make a whole lot of sense to eat an anti-inflammatory diet. Right. Right. I mean, that's just common sense. Um, I posted something a couple of weeks ago about vitamin D deficiency. Um, something that I noticed in talking with the functional restoration program, I visited a bunch of these clinics around the country, and, but this, this one particular one in 2013 made mention that every single person that came into their clinic whether they were coming in for addiction treatment through recovery, whether they are coming in for pain management to taper off of opioids, every single person had a vitamin D deficiency when they came (laughs) in. And think about it, Mm -hmm. if you're in pain or in recovery or want to be in recovery, you don't get out in the sun very much, you don't get the kind of natural vitamin D, you probably don't eat right so you're not getting the proper nutrients. And so originally they were testing everybody for vitamin D deficiency and eventually they just saw overwhelmingly everybody came in with it and, but they also recognized that once they rectified that situation um, that their clinical outcomes got better. So they changed from testing it to just automatically flooding them with vitamin D on admission, and they found the clinical outcomes increased. Now, you don't, wouldn't necessarily think of vitamin D as a pain management tool, but when you talk about inflammation, when you end the article that I posted was about um, decreased cognition. So it, it decreases your mental faculties when mm-hmm. you have vitamin D deficiency. So you don't think as well. You don't think as clearly. Right. You don't necessarily make the best decisions if you don't have that natural vitamin D in there. Mm-hmm. So you don't think of vitamin D as a pain management tool. But in reality, it is. So, you know, yeah. we got to think bigger. And we we got sucked into this lie that there's a magic pill. Um, you know, this pill was going to take care of all of our problems. And that letter to the editor that became a clinical study that Purdue Pharma right. said, no, you know, less than one percent chance. Um, I think we all know, we all know at this point that that was a lie, um, but we everybody bought into it. Doctors bought into it. Nurses bought into it. The fifth vital sign was added, so mm-hmm. we, now we got the frowny face, smiley face. Mm-hmm. We have the press gainy patient satisfaction survey, so based on how you feel you were treated, right. you may dictate how you how you are actually treated. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that happened mid 1990s, and, and a lot of people were asleep at the switch. We just accepted that as gospel and we we were we were not we were sold a bill of goods. Yeah. And so now we're understanding, really kind of getting back to the old days. Right? Back before we were told that there was a magic pill, people used all these techniques to manage pain. Yeah. You know, so we, we just, I, I have this theory that, that given who we are right now as a country, we never would have gotten west of the Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> the lack of resilience, the, the, the willingness to kind of outsource our health care, to outsource um, a lot of our, our, you know, what we do as human beings. Mm-hmm. We're willing to go, no, I, I'm not going to do the hard stuff. I'm going to take the easy route. And generally, you don't get great outcomes when you take the easy road.
0: Right. I'm constantly railing on my children about that whole anyway. attitude problem right there. Just, just try harder, and, yeah. and, I, <laughs> and I get some pushback. Well, you know, you you bring up a really important point about what we didn't know in the '90s, and at the forum that you and I uh, worked on together, m- my part of the presentation was all about employee education. So I'm interested to hear um, about what do you see employers doing to bridge the employee education gap. I know that the National Safety Council has some really good tools and resources, but Mm -hmm. so far we're a little behind on educating employees about the dangers of opioids. I mean, how many times do you have to hear the story from the mom who just buried her son Uh, because he overdosed on heroin, and they track it all the way back to when he was in high school and blew out his ACL on the high school football field and Mm -hmm. was prescribed OxyContin by the orthopedic surgeon. Mm -hmm. But, but of course, back in the day, like you said, doctors were told that that was safe, and so they wrote it down on a prescription pad and handed it over to the mom, and she believed that that was safe because no one said otherwise. Mm -hmm. So now that we're here after all of this tragedy i still don't necessarily see what we're doing to educate the patient and and give them the right tools to go to you know the doctor's office and say no instead of that i'd rather have this mm-hmm. or i'd rather try something else and and with a, a list of alternatives i still don't see that we're there yet what's it going to take to get there <laughs>
1: Um, we're definitely, it's going to require a sea change, I think, and employers taking responsibility for that. I am seeing some progress. For example, i worked with a couple of employers, probably been three years ago now, um, that when one of their injured workers, and again, this is in the paradigm of workers' compensation, um, but when one of their injured workers got that first prescription for an opioid, we created an infographic letter that was written at fifth grade level and they p- included it in their disability check so when they got the check that was paying for them being out of work they also got this infographic to go okay just want to let you know here's potentially some side effects here's some things you need to consider um certainly um, when there were people that were on long-term opioid use Um, they would send a different letter out. It's like, okay, maybe the reason why you feel crappy is because of the drugs. Mm -hmm. Let us know if you want to talk about it. So there are some employers that are doing that education within the confines of comp because they have control, right? I mean, ultimately, the employer is paying the cost for Mm -hmm. that treatment. Um, But I'm seeing some other things, too, uh, uh, an increased focus on wellness, Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, EAPs, employee assistance programs, have been around for a while. Um, nothing great new there, but um, we haven't. The, the advent of a of a of a standing desk is something new. Yes. You know the the concept of um, and I've heard of employers that that go around and for their sedentary workers going out going around every couple of hours and reminding them that they need to get up and walk sure. around.
0: Having walking meetings.
1: Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Um, employers swapping out um, their uh, concession, um, you know, uh, concession boxes, the vending machines, instead of you know a bunch of cokes and so forth, they're putting vitamin water or just water in there. Instead of a Snickers bar, they're putting in um, you know trail mix or you know, blueberries. Or, I mean, you know, I've heard of employers that are bringing nutritionists in mm-hmm. and uh, lunch and learn, kind of teaching them how to cook at home yeah. and having less sodium um, and less sugar and how to do that. Yeah. You know? So I see there, there is an increased focus on wellness. Does that necessarily tell them, educate them on the dangers of opioids or prescription drugs? Not really, but I, th- I think it's a corollary mm-hmm. um, because if you can get people to kind of own their health care, yep. own their, um, you know, what they're doing and eat differently, um, exercise. Um, some employers have elevator-free days. So if they're in a, if they're <laughs> in a building, a they go, you know, if you can do it, you're trucking up the stairs this day. You right. know, the elevator's out of service. Right. You know, just kind of sending those messages out. Um, And I think employers are seeing it in a variety of different ways and the reasons for it. Number one, um, if you do have a workers' compensation claim, the best possibility for return to work and a shorter duration of disability is for them to be physically, psychologically, emotionally fit before the injury actually occurs.
0: That's all for today. Join us again next time for part two with Mark Pugh. Thank you for joining our important discussion as we attempt to hashtag Let's Fix Healthcare. Please subscribe to our podcast and let us know what you think. For more information on the work we do at Custom Benefit Solutions, visit our website at www.custombenefits.org.